Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13. We're going to be walking through verses 20 through 25 this morning. Uh, it's been over the last year, we have walked through, uh, for many of you have been with us for the, this past year, we've walked through Leviticus starting in Genesis, or starting in January, we've walked through, or starting in January, we've walked through Leviticus, and then we followed it up with walking through the book of Hebrews, and now uh, today we're going to come to the final portion of the book of Hebrews, and then we will prepare for our Advent season next, in the next four weeks. So if you're willing and able, if you please stand with me for the reading of God's holy and inspired word, Hebrews 20 through 25. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of eternal covenant, equip you with every good, everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my, wor my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see if he has come soon. Greet all the leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with you, with all of you. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Almighty God, as we come before you this morning, we come in humility. We recognize in that you are God and we are not. As we dig into this text this morning, I pray that you would use me to help clearly proclaim the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. I pray that you would convict us where we need to be convicted, that you would challenge us where we need to be challenged, that you would comfort us where we would need to be comforted. But Lord, just as the, the recipients of this great letter were encouraged to persevere in their faith too, Lord, I pray that you would help us uh, to, as we persevere in the world that you've called us to today. We pray this all in your name. Amen. You may be seated. I'm not sure how many of you, but I love getting letters in the mail. I know you don't get them very often, but uh, in the summer of 1999, I got quite a few letters. I was a camp counselor uh, at Eagle Lake Camp up in Colorado Springs, and I would get letters from my grandmother on a very regular basis. So let me read to you one of the fine letters that grandma would send. She was a, uh, let me tell you about my grandma. She was a, uh, a farmer's wife on a small farm in Iowa. And so you can tell she was not a big writer. She was very brief. But what she said mattered a lot. Let me tell you. Dear Brandon, I hope you're doing well. Your mother tells me that you're really enjoying camp. It's been in the mid-90s all week. And grandpa's getting a little worried about the corn and beans as we haven't got much rain. The rain gauge says we've only gotten slightly over a quarter of inch in the last few weeks. Everyone came for lunch this past week and it was great to see Barb and Lori and your mom. We went to Corey and Blaine's baseball games this past week. Corey was three for four when they played Sioux Center and played shortstop. Your brother Blaine is doing great and those boys keep on winning. They're so fun to watch. I know that you're doing a great job. Keep up the good work. I love you much. Take care, Grandma. It was a simple letter, right? Uh, it wasn't much to say, but I did love receiving letters. But in that summer, as I was a camp counselor, my grandma was telling me all the most important things that mattered to a farmer's wife. One, the amount of the heat as it pertained to the crops. Also, how much rain they have gotten because of no rain, no food, and the kids would starve. And of course, what mattered most to grandpa was how my cousins and my brother were doing when it came to baseball. But you see, when we look at the book of Hebrews, it's actually a letter. 
As you recall, it was written by an apostolic figure to the early church in the first century to real people with real concerns. And the letter was written to them that important aspects of the Christian faith to encourage them to stand firm in Jesus Christ as they press forward in midst of the persecution that they were facing in the area that they were. And throughout the letter, Christ is presented as the radiance of the glory of God. And as we recap a little bit of the letter, we remember in the first half of the letter, Jesus is presented to us as the great high priest who sits at the, at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, interceding on our behalf. And then, as we continued on in the letter, we learn that Jesus is superior to angels, superior to Moses, superior to all the priests who have come before. He's even superior to Abraham. He's the mediator of the superior covenant, and his sacrifice is final, and the only sacrifice that would fully justify the Lord Jesus Christ, or the God the Father. But see, in the second half, then the author comes to a great therefore. And halfway through chapter 10, he encourages us in our Christian living, in our faith. And he reminds us of examples of where we're called to place our faith. And those who have gone before us, who have persevered, as we remember the great hall of faith. He encourages them to not grow weary, for we have a kingdom that cannot be shaken. He encouraged the believers to remember and to uh, not give up meeting together as one or and some are in the habit of doing, but encourage one another and all the more as that day approaches when Christ's second coming. And then he exhorted us to live in a manner worthy of our calling and to love our brothers. And throughout this book, now we've come to the end, to the benediction, to this final little section in the book of Hebrews. And we can learn a lot about the, a lot about the author about his passion, his understanding, and even the encouragement to press forward by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, as the, he closes the letter, he does so with a benediction or a prayer that reminds the audience of the superiority of who Christ is and what he has done and how to preserve and persevere as they live out in the world. And so tonight, or this morning, as we persevere in this world, we must not do so on our own strength, but by God's power, through God's eternal covenant with Jesus because of God's salvation through the blood of Christ to the glory of God. And so those are the four points we're going to unpack this morning as we look through this benediction. So as we see in verse 20, the author brings this great majestic conclusion, or you might see in the heading of your Bibles, it says benediction. Now benediction actually means good word. It's a prayer to God on behalf of the readers. Every week at the conclusion of our services, you'll see Chris or I, we will stand up here and we will give you a benediction. Most of you, uh, for sure, almost all of the kids can recite it from number six. May the Lord bless you and keep you and may his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you and give you peace. It's a benediction. And it's in where the author is praying for the people, which is only appropriate as we consider in just the previous chapter where he asked for prayers for himself. But this letter is a word of exhortation as well. Namely, that through Jesus Christ, the congregation would stand firm, that they would persevere, that they would live in a manner pleasing to God. And this is reminded to us in verse 15 of chapter 13, where he summarizes it in this way. Through him, then, let us continuously offer up sacrifice to the praise of God. The benediction, likewise, summarizes this entire letter that the reader may do God's will and please Him 
with their lives. And we are reminded in this, in this closing about his passion and his dedication and what we are called to do as we live in this world. But there's something to notice here within this benediction and how they're to res- respond and re- appeal. And while the responsibility is that we have a moral agency, we lack the power to do what God commands. And I see, I love how the writer has frequently encouraged and urged these Christians, but ultimately we notice that he must appeal to God for the power needed to do his will, to equip them, as as Jake said, that we need to be empowered, to not do it on our own because we can't. He has a great longing is that the Lord Jesus Christ would equip them with every good work, good, so that they can do his his will amidst the persecution and the challenges they encourage daily. His confidence is in the God whom he prays is as important as what he prays. Only a saving God can equip them with everything good as he is the God of peace. On our own, we don't have the equipment that we need, do we? We need the instructions, as Jake had mentioned. The same is for us as in the time, people in the time of the letter. What will enable you to live differently in the world that we have today? What would allow you to persevere? What will enable you to, to demonstrate kindness and mercy? What will allow you to forgive those that have hurt you? What will allow, enable you to stop living by fear? What will you need to, to continue living and stop justifying your sin? Any of these things that are going to happen are not done by human effort alone. You see, the Bible says that we can't do it on our own. In fact, in Romans 3, it says none is righteous, not no one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does well, not even one. This idea that we are equipped to do every good work is not done on our own effort, that we somehow muster up the strength to persevere in the world that we live. But see, that we don't even need the Bible to tell us this is true. So much of our world thinks that we are much more intelligent than the generations that have come before, and yet when you consider the chaos of the world, you know that that's not necessarily true, and that none are righteous. But we don't even have to look to the world, do we? If we look here in the United States, and we recognize even within our neighborhoods and our cities, we recognize the craziness that is happening. What we see on television, we see how marriages are hurting, and Families are broken. Apart from God's intervention, the ability to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel remains beyond our grasp in any true and lasting sense. We need the Lord Jesus Christ to equip us with His grace. But even as we consider this for a moment, we think about our neighborhoods and our people, let me bring it home to ourselves and ask ourselves this very question. The Bible claims that apart from the grace of Jesus Christ, Entering into a man or woman who has come to faith, the heart is self-serving, deceitful, ultimately self-destroying. And if you look at your own heart, so often we, would on, or we don't recognize that we are even blind to our own blindness. That we can't even see our own sin in the way that we try to protect ourselves and try to adjust our behavior. And yet the writer of Hebrews has real hope for the listeners, and I would even argue real hope for us today. Not because there's something special about them or nothing special about us, but because he's appealing to the God of peace on their behalf. It says something about the God 
that he trusts more than he does for us. God has within himself true peace to give, and he desires peace with us, and he offers peace to this world, even as we continue to sin against him. When the author describes God as a God of peace, I was intrigued. How often we take some of these words for granted. Often at this time of the year, we'll hear things like joy and peace during this holiday season or the Christmas season. But this type of peace that people are noting is different. What they're talking about is calmness or without trouble. Somebody might remark if you have a boat that the the lake was very peaceful today. Referencing the the lack of waves and the, the, the stillness of the boat. However, peace in the biblical thought is far more than a calm without trouble. It denotes the quality of salvation that God offers and can give to his people. He has obtained peace for us through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ who overcomes the grips of death. You see, by triumph, conflict, by that triumphant conquest, we have peace with God, and consequently, we have peace with others. This type of peace is much more deep, more profound. It's not like the moment when the house is quiet and the kids are in bed. It's a deep sense knowing that whatever is coming your way, that the great shepherd of the sheep is leading and tending to you this day. As the author prays to the God of peace, he is praying to the one that gives us peace with God and equips us for the perseverance that we need as we walk in this world. You see, the message of Christianity is not that we must do God's will and that we can have peace with God. Whatever, we can never do this until we first receive his peace. As we see in Romans, the Apostle Paul puts it this way, well, we are still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. God shows us love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You do not have to earn or negotiate peace with God, but only to receive it through His Son, Jesus Christ. And out of His peace comes every good thing needed to do His will, even the peaceful fruit of godliness, perseverance, joy, hope, It's through Christ's peace that enables us to persevere in the world that we live in. I I ask you this question as, as we transition even to the next point. As you pray for others, do you pray with the same confidence that the author of Hebrews prays for others? Do you pray knowing that the God of peace is able to equip your people who you are praying for for every good work, to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, to the power that they need, Does it say something about your prayers and who you're praying for? When you pray, consider the God and the power of God and believe that he would equip them for every good work. As we consider the the second part of this benediction, the God of eternal covenant with Jesus Christ, uh, I mentioned to you that Northwest Iowa, rain is focal. is the focal point of every conversation. You go to the local gas station, the men are there talking about the rain, how much they got, or lack thereof. Because without rain, there's no crops, and without crops, there's no food, and frankly, everybody's cranky, right? For the author of Hebrews, the centrality and the supremacy of Christ was the focal point of this entire letter. If you've been with us for the last couple of months, you would know that we talk about the supremacy of Christ. But even in this final benediction, we see that Christ is central as he comes back to the central point. 
The source of this transformation is God's own peace and means through which it is received is the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is through Christ that every spiritual blessing comes. As we see both in, in verse 20, we also see that Jesus Christ is the great shepherd of the sheep. And so it is only by following Christ and being part of the flock that he shepherds that anyone could receive the blessings of salvation. The work of the shepherd to sacrifice his life on behalf of the sheep is the message of hope that we have in the gospel. When we are still dead in our sins, the power of the Holy Spirit is work in us to bring us to Christ. We become a new creation. That old is gone. The new has come. And then life is realized as Christ is our great shepherd who works with us through the spiritual power of God. And it was through the blood of the eternal covenant between God the Father and God the Son that brought again, brought us from the dead and bring us alive. And this is a very instructive and informative statement. For all you kids that were, did the catechisms last year with here on Sunday nights, you may remember a covenant is a relationship that God establishes with us but guarantees by His Word. And you see, a covenant is a binding agreement. Provides terms according to which two parties come together. And in the ancient world, a conquering Lord would impose terms upon His new vessels, who by accepting those terms would enter into a covenant relationship. A failure to maintain the covenant would be costly. Now, for most of us, the covenant relationship that we're familiar with is a marriage relationship, a marriage covenant, in which a husband and a wife or a man and a woman would come together and solemnly swear through their formal vows. The parties in the covenant of this passage are God the Father and God the Son. And it's an eternal covenant, which means its effects reaches forever everlasting. Forward everlasting. Christ was raised from the dead once and for all into the eternal life. And if we recall back in Hebrews 7, 25, it says this. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Because Jesus Christ lives and reigns forever, he is able to offer secure salvation to those who place their faith in Christ. Though Through faith we are made heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, and thus our inheritance is an eternal one. It's through Christ, therefore, that God makes a covenant with us. And by this, he's saying, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant. This covenant, which was outlined in chapter 8 of the book, is sealed by Jesus' blood, and it's eternal, and its benefits, namely the forgiveness of sins, will never go away. They will last forever. The covenant agreement between God the Father and the Son explains why in Hebrews 12 it says, It is for the joy set before Him that Jesus entered the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. In the shadow of the cross, our Lord could see the victory that enabled Him to gather us into eternal life. We are reminded of this. The Puritan John Flavel preached on this text and I was researching this week, he imagines the conversation that must have taken between God and, 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 and Jesus as well, and exhorts us to the highest devotion as we understand this exchange. Let me read to you a little bit from his understanding. The Father says of us, he says, My son, here's a company of poor, miserable souls that have utterly undone themselves and now lie open to my justice. 
Justice demands satisfaction for them or will satisfy itself in the eternal ruin of them. What shall be done of these souls? Christ replies, O my Father, such is my love too and pity for them that rather than they shall perish eternally, I shall be responsible for them and their surety. Bring all of their bills that I may see what they owe. Lord, bring them all in that there may be no other reckoning with thee. At that hand shall thou require it. I would rather choose to suffer thy wrath than they should suffer it upon me. My father, be all the dead upon me. But my son, says God, if thou undertakest for them, thou must reckon to pay the last might. Expect no abasement. If I spare them, I will not spare thee. And Christ replied, Content, Father, let it be so. Charge it all to me. I am able to discharge it. And through it proves the kind of undoing to me. And though it impoverishes all my riches, empties all my treasure, yet I am content to undertake it. Flavel concluded in this exchange, which agrees with the biblical picture here, that we must blush to be ungrateful to someone so pure who bore our sin, to, to one so right who took the poverty, to the one so innocent who paid the penalty of our guilt because of his love for us. To endure, to withstand, to persevere as we are called to the people of Hebrews, they were called to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel that they were called. Empowered by the understanding of the great gospel and Christ's supremacy. Last week I was teaching in Sunday school and we were talking about uh, how we are called to extend mercy to those around us. And I had given the list of ten attributes of how we are to be faithful in the midst of those that are suffering and all these different commands that we are called to give. And someone from the class pointed out that if we change the subject from us to Christ and put it in the past tense, how that changes. How Christ has endured for us. How Christ is patient with us. How Christ extends mercy to us. And on and on and on. I wonder how often if we understand what Christ has done for us, it would allow us to extend and to walk in the manner that we are called to do. Equipped by the peace of the Lord Jesus Christ. How we can be steadfast in challenging times. All of you are facing challenges in your life. I know it, right? I'm your pastor. Some of you have the call to persevere, to remain steadfast, remains a challenging one. But just as the writer of the letter of Hebrews reminded the listeners of the sacrifice of Christ, may you also cling to what Christ has done for you. May you cling and not give up. May you continue to persevere in your walk. And I pray that you are always reminded of the eternal covenant that was purchased on your behalf through Jesus Christ. May you persevere in the world that we live. But we also see that in verse 20 of this great benediction that it is not only the eternal covenant, but it was the blood of Christ. Through His blood, He fulfills the part of the covenant. Having first appeared as the spotless lamb, a person without any blemish of his own, and therefore able to offer up himself for others. Now for many of us, we see this and we, we don't take much note of it. But now the Jews at the time in the first century would have heard this and would have brought a lot of things to their minds, and it should for us as well. 
This is the cup of new covenant in my blood. Now, I understand for many of you, there's some men out there that go hunting and you, and you are familiar with blood and understand that. But for many of us who have grown up in the era of the supermarkets where we go and buy boneless chicken breasts wrapped in plastic from our local Walmart, we never had to deal with much of the reality of animal slaughter. For most of us, the closest we come to a dead carcass is what we probably had to deal with is this past Thanksgiving table as you dealt with your turkey. And so it's difficult for us to understand the fullness of the sacrificial slaughter of thousands upon thousands of animals that is described in the Old Testament. But this has been the case for the but this would not have been the case for the listeners. When they understand the blood of Christ, that these these Christians at the time were tempted to revert back to Christianity or to Judaism, we were reminded time and time again they were called to persevere to continue to trust and walk forward by the blood of Christ. Nancy Guthrie says uh, this about the Old Testament sacrifice. The blood served as an unavoidable megaphone, shouting about the seriousness of sin and reminding the people that sin both brings and demands death. You see, blood was like a constant flashing neon sign in the window of the Israelites' mind. Sin brings death. Death. Sin brings death. Sin brings about death. The megaphone of sacrifice also points to the need of that perfect sacrifice. The one that would end all sacrifices from all time. Jesus was that perfect sacrifice and our sin was covered by his death. And again, to say that this was God's eternal plan from the very beginning. If you go back to Hebrews 2.9, the author says, Jesus, because of the suffering of death, was crowned with glory and honor. Jesus' exaltation is directly related to his suffering. And that was part of the deal, as it were, here. This was the part of the eternal covenant that Christ would sacrifice himself for us. Earlier this year, as I mentioned before, we worked through the book of Leviticus. And for many of us, I bet you can recall the number of... Uh, the book was soaked with the blood of animals. Yes? Uh, and the letter with the Hebrews, however, is soaked in the blood of Christ. A great portion of its teachings has to do with the unique and saving efficacy of the blood of Jesus Christ and how it far surpasses and fulfills the meaning of the blood of the goats that were offered daily by the Jews. The author tells us this is how Christ saves us, not by setting a great moral example, or by giving us a great philosophy to enlighten our minds, or a better political agenda. But you see that Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sacrifice people by his blood. It's through his blood that we understand the fullness of our sins. The very fact that our sin requires death and blood to be spilled should tell us something about the significance of our sins. Your sins are not taken lightly, it took a sacrifice. A perfect sacrifice to die on your behalf. And so if you tend to think lightly of your sins like it's no big deal, it cost our Savior his life. But not only was the shedding of blood show the extent of our sinfulness, but also shows the magnitude of God's love for us. J.I. Packer writes this in, in his book. He says, The measure of love is how much it gives. And the measure of the love of God is the gift of his only Son, 
to be made man and to die for sin. And so to become the one mediator who brings us to God. It's no wonder Paul speaks of God's love as tremendous and surpassing knowledge. The New Testament writers constantly point to the cross of Christ as the crowning proof of the reality of God's boundless love. Not only does death our sin require death, but we see that we, how much Christ loves us. The blood not only speaks of the fullness of our sin, the death of His love, but it proclaims His complete involvement in our world at every level. I recently had a conversation with a young man who had, the Lord was reaching out to him, is really speaking to him and drawing him to himself. And it was fascinating how the Lord had been continuously doing this. He went to another church in a different state, and it was almost as if he said the Lord, or the pastor was speaking directly to me and reminding me that the Lord is with me and is drawing me to himself. He goes, then the next week I went to a different church and he goes, I felt like this, uh, the pastor was saying a different sermon and he was speaking directly to me as well. And he's continuously drawing me to himself. He never leaves us nor forsakes us. His love is always renewing us for his glory and our good. You see the world, God doesn't just wind up the world, put it into motion and let it go and sit back and see what happens. The Lord Jesus Christ is intimately involved in every single one of our lives, and He knows what you're going through. He knew what was happening with the Hebrews as they were living out in this world and calling them to persevere, to continue going forward. And for all of us, some of you are going through hard times. I understand that. But the Lord is intimately involved in every aspect of your life. He never leaves you. He knows what you're going through, and He's still calling you to persevere. By His grace, He's walking with you. Do not forget that. Do not forget to cling to that promise that He is always with you, that He loves you so much that He gave you His Son to die on the cross for you. And He empowers you with every good work by His peace and by His grace. As we end, as we come close to the final point, for Him and through Him and to Him, as we've been calling this a great benediction, we have, but at the very end of verse 21, it becomes a great doxology. A song of praise that makes a fitting climax to everything that we have learned in the, in the letter to the Hebrews. Speaking of Jesus, the, le- the writer concludes, To whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And this is similar climax is perhaps compared to the one that the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 11. For, for from him, through him, and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. And I think how fitting it is that since the book of Hebrews has its great theme, the deity and the surpassing greatness of Jesus Christ, who brings us to God, that this is the formula should be applied to God the Son. As we are reminded that The blood speaks of the source of our salvation. It is from Jesus Christ that we gain all things with God. And in verse 21, the author prays for Christians to be empowered to serve and please God through Jesus Christ, our great shepherd and our leader in salvation. And then the last word of the benediction tells us that this is also to Jesus Christ, who is our God incarnate, is the recipient of all worship and praise. 
In the opening verse of Hebrews, the author points out that God's ultimate revelation to, to man is through His Son. His resurrection is received supremacy over all things. And since the Son is the revelation of the Father, when we worship Jesus, we are worshiping God and the man that He has prescribed. All of our salvation and all of our worship are from Him, through Him, and to Him, and all to the glory of God the Father. And this is true. The one essential thing to hold fast to is Jesus Christ. And this is what the early Christians were seeing in the world as it was changing right before their eyes, just as many of us do now. I was, I was having Thanksgiving dinner, and I was talking with a friend, as many of you probably did, how northwest Arkansas is constantly changing, is it not? Cow pastures are now subdivisions, and it's happening all over the place. How much our world has changed, and I've only been here for four years, but our world is constantly changing. As it was in the time of the letter, people who are receiving this letter, their security, their peace, their prosperity in the world were falling away in the face of sin and death. And in meanwhile, they were commanded to live the kind of lives that seemed impossible. They could hardly imagine doing anything according to God's will and pleasing Him in all things. It's no wonder that the writer of Hebrews concludes with grace be with you all. Because they would need God's favor, they would need God's help every single way, every part of the way. It was only God's grace that empowers them to live for Him. And just as it is for us that we cling forth in an ever-changing world that we need God's grace to empower us to be faithful, to press forward to glorifying God. And that it is from Christ's blood that grace is made available to us. It's through His promises that we find grace for the trials of today. We offer all the glory of this of His grace to Him who is enthroned at the right hand of God of the majesty on high. We pray that God will work in us, that we might be holy, that we might be more and more like Jesus, but also that we strive in His strength to live in a manner worthy of our calling. And we seek to do His will. God's work in us equips us and enables us to seek His will and to do His commands. And it's through Jesus Christ through His continuously work in us and by the work of the Holy Spirit, that, that we can finally say to Him, be glory forever and ever. Amen. All things are to the glory of God, and here specifically to the great shepherd through whom this is done. Glory to Jesus Christ forever and ever. All things, salvation, sanctification, and life are of His grace. It's God's work first and foremost, and all things are to be done to give Him glory. And so I thought I'd end with, as the writer of Hebrews says, that we can be so fitting to the conclusion of this great epistle. So let me read this great benediction. He says, Let us then lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the, found, that, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. To Him be glory forever and ever, to the praise of His Father in heaven. Amen. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank You for this great letter. We thank You for our time of study, that You've continued to work in Chris and I, that as we preach the good news and the hope that comes through this book, and being reminded that we are called to be steadfast in an ever-changing world. 
Father, I pray more than anything else that you would continue to equip us. Help us to persevere amongst the struggles and the challenges that many of us face. Help us to walk by grace and by peace and to know and to trust you even in the midst of persecution, challenges that we face. May you receive all the glory and praise. Amen.